Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. I'm Sarah Carlisle, a Senior Associate in Barry Nielsen's Health Law Team. And today I'm bringing you part two of our Kelly Lane podcast series. In our last episode, we spoke to obstetrician and gynecologist Dr. Barty from the Mata Mothers Hospital about the maternal health care issues which arise specifically in the context of Kelly Lane's case. Dr. Barty gave us some really interesting insight into how a busy maternity hospital manages the care of women, both during pregnancy and postnatally. One important aspect of that care, of course, is identifying and managing perinatal and postnatal mental health issues. Following on from my chat with Dr. Barty, today I'm excited to share with you my recent conversation with Catherine Smith, a clinical psychologist and the joint director of a large private practice in Brisbane. Catherine has a broad range of experience, which includes a stint working in a large maternity hospital, providing psychological support to women during pregnancy and in the postnatal period. In our recent catch-up, we discussed the psychology behind secret pregnancies, and the significance of perinatal and postnatal mental disorders, both in that context and more generally. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Catherine, and thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us today. You're welcome. Thanks. Now, as you know, we'd like to speak to you about the very interesting case of Kelly Lane. To set the scene for our listeners, let's refresh the relevant facts briefly. When Kelly fell pregnant for the first time in 1992, she was just 17 years old. She was living with her mother and father, a working-class family well-regarded among their local community on the northern beaches of Sydney. Her father was a police constable and her mother was a homemaker. She was a gifted water polo player who was liked by her peers. Fast forward seven years to 1999 and Kelly, now 24, has had five secret pregnancies and secretly given birth to three babies. Remarkably, Kelly concealed each of the pregnancies from everyone around her. She didn't tell her parents, friends or boyfriends, water polo coaches or teammates. None of the pregnancies were planned, and from all accounts, they were all unwelcome. In the aftermath of the pregnancies, during the police investigation into the disappearance of Tegan Lane, Kelly's fourth child, Kelly repeatedly lied about her history insofar as it related to the pregnancies and the children she had given birth to. So we've loosely referred to Kelly's pregnancies as hidden pregnancies or secret pregnancies. The term cryptic pregnancy also comes up. Um, But perhaps you can help us to get the label right with an explanation of the different situations which fit broadly under that classification of a hidden or secret pregnancy. There are really two categories that this kind of falls under. One is um, a concealed pregnancy um, where the mother will actively um, conceal the pregnancy um, from friends, family, society in general. And there may be a number of reasons why she does this, such as um, 
religious reasons, career reasons. It may be the result of um, some sexual abuse, unplanned kind of pregnancy. Or, you know, sometimes a couple may actually conceal the pregnancy together from others because they have had a failed pregnancy previously or the baby may have died soon after birth and so they want to get the baby baby delivered safely out into the world and be able to announce to the world that this baby is here and is safe and has arrived. The other type is denial. Denial is very different to concealment. So denial is where a mother will actively deny that she's pregnant and she's most likely to do this on a subconscious level, meaning that she's also not aware. And because she may attribute a number of symptoms to just kind of feeling tired, a bit run down, weight gain, particularly women that are probably in their 40s and believe that they are perimenopausal and so their periods are not very regular anymore. And they just kind of put down not having a period to menopause rather than being pregnant. And then they also kind of same with the weight gain. They think it's because of all different hormonal changes. Other um, women may also deny it through being naive about what this is all about. And you may see that with quite some of the younger girls as well um, and not really quite sure what's going on um, in their body. There are cases where people may have a mental illness and there are cases certainly where people have um, drug abuse issues and they don't realise they are pregnant. Mm. That's a scary thought. Um, and the mental health issues is that they've got sort of such low insight because of a psychiatric condition. Is that why they don't realise? Yes. Or yeah, that will be other... the case. But yeah. they are yeah. very rare, yeah. those cases of mental illness. Yes, sure. So out of the denial or concealment classes then, which category do we think Kelly fits into? From what I understand of the Kelly Lane case is that it was concealment. Uh, she actively concealed her pregnancy, um, well, her pregnancies, I should say. And if you kind of look at some of the um, reporting that was done around that case and some of the interviews that's done with people that knew her, they would talk about her actively kind of wearing baggy clothes, you know, keeping a towel around her until she got into the pool. And no one really wanted to speak to her about weight gain, even though they noticed that she was gaining weight. It's always been a bit of a taboo topic. Mm, yeah, okay. I, I agree with that on my understanding of all the facts. And do you think it's unusual that someone would have repeated concealed pregnancies the way Kelly did? I think it probably is very unusual, but because they are concealed pregnancies, we won't really have an instance of how many cases out there actually go um, like this. And there will be many cases that wouldn't come to public attention um, like Kelly. I think, you know, in Kelly's case is quite um, unique in that, you know, the, the evidence is that she was pregnant five times and was able to conceal these pregnancies. And I do wonder whether because Kelly got away with it the first time that she thought, well, I can continue to do this and this is probably no problem. I can continue to train and function just like I wasn't pregnant. I think the other thing with um, Kelly, why it was easy to conceal and often with pregnancy, there is gradual weight gain. If we saw someone 
at the start of the pregnancy and six months later, we would certainly notice a difference. But if we see someone kind of day in and day out, there are gradual changes associated with pregnancy. And some of those gradual changes could be accounted for just gaining weight as in fat. And typically when women are pregnant, they'll gain um, weight around their stomach, their buttocks, their breasts will increase. And these are typical places that the average woman gains weight as well. And I think with um, people like Kelly, it would have been very difficult to talk to her about her weight or even make a comment about the weight because it's always a taboo area. Now, you touched upon this briefly before, Catherine, but the factors, the reasons why people deny or conceal pregnancies and the primary reasons, I suppose, that might apply to Kelly's situation, is it often caused by an underlying mental condition or is it just as likely to be caused by social or cultural factors? We like to think that there'll be some explanation for why people would deny or conceal a pregnancy. And we like to often think that could be attributed to mental illness or maybe drug abuse. And yes, sometimes it is. But those um, cases of mental illness and drug abuse with those things are actually quite rare. It is more often about, um, say with concealment, that the woman has another agenda, that she doesn't want people to know for a particular reason. Um, and the denial may be that the denial is actually about the woman not knowing herself that she actually is pregnant. So they're actually quite two distinct categories, but not necessarily in association with mental illness. Yes, it can happen, but it's not common. Sure. Okay. In the case of Kelly, it's, I suppose, not really clear why she behaved the way she did. You've given us a neat hypothesis about the career being one significant factor impacting it, but it's still quite baffling to most people Mm. why she would fall pregnant and conceal all of those pregnancies repeatedly. Um, If we look at the evidence which was heard by the court during Kelly Lane's criminal trial, a psychiatrist, Dr Diamond, um, gave an opinion to the court and he referred to her behaviour in falling pregnant again and again after her first pregnancy and termination at 17 as a repetition compulsion. Yeah. Um, he said it was a powerful drive to revisit an unresolved conflicted state that the behaviour seemed to defy rational explanation for repeating such a poor choice, yet the compulsion to repeat that behaviour was very powerful. Mm-hmm. He explained the compulsion by reference to what he understood to be an underlying disturbed personality dysfunction. Yeah. What is a disturbed personality dysfunction? Um, and do you agree that it might manifest itself in the way that Kelly behaved? Yes, I, I do agree that it could manifest in that way. Um, there are people... Um, There are many people out there that we will refer to having characterological disorders or commonly in psychiatry refer to them as personality disorders. And they are disorders of the self, of their um, identity, how they relate to people. Um, And sometimes they have uh, deficits in empathy, Um, for others being able to regulate their own emotions or regulate their actions. So they're kind of quite wide and varied. And sometimes, you know, I think what the psychiatrist was referring to in the case with Kelly Lane 
was that she was trying to go back and resolve this conflict and trying to do this, what we refer to as a kind of bit of a magical undoing, that when something bad happens, we want to do something that maybe will right that response. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So is a person with a personality disorder then more likely to conceal a pregnancy perhaps than someone who suffers depression or anxiety or a condition of that nature? I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know if I can actually give you a definitive answer on that. I would say just from clinical knowledge that there's probably more of a tendency and that would be in relation to certain personality disorders. Um, So it won't kind of encompass all. But um, a personality disorder such as borderline personality disorder where they have difficulties with managing relationships and emotions um, and also engage in just um, self-destructive behaviours. There may be also um, cases of narcissistic personality disorder and whether Kelly Lane fell into that as well, where they have very little empathy um, for other people and really kind of put their own needs first. And then there's some more disturbed personality disorder, like a paranoid personality disorder, where they don't really want anyone to kind of come too close to them and they have some suspicious beliefs about people. So there'll be a whole range of things that possibly lead them to conceal um, a pregnancy. But at the same time, someone that we would say doesn't have a characterological disturbance could also conceal a pregnancy for a number of other reasons, such as, you know, like I said before, religious reasons, family um, disapproval. It may be because it's, you know, from sexual abuse or, or the failure of contraception. So, it, you know, the list goes on. Sure, sure. Um, another medical expert who gave evidence in the criminal trial. Dr. Thompson, he was a general practitioner who had consulted Kelly a number of times. He described Kelly's behaviours as a kind of dysfunctional way of managing the condition, the condition I understand to mean her pregnancy. Do you agree that concealment of pregnancy is a dysfunctional way of managing the pregnancy? And is that a symptom of any particular psychological condition or distress, dysfunctional coping mechanisms or maladaptive coping mechanisms? I think concealment probably is a maladaptive coping mechanism because what um, a female is essentially doing is kind of cutting herself off from getting assistance and support from others in her environment. And um, it's probably, you know, it's also doesn't bode well as far as kind of her being able to manage her own mental health and physical needs when she's pregnant. Yes, of course, yeah. And you've probably already addressed this in previous questions, but the reasons people do that are many and varied, that they would adopt maladaptive coping strategies like that. That's right, that's right, yeah. So, Catherine, um, Kelly loosely fits into a lot of the characteristics that you've explained can cause someone to conceal a pregnancy. She was young, her pregnancies were unwanted, and she had this career as an elite athlete, which the pregnancies were at least a perceived threat to subjectively for her. Um, We don't know, other than that reference in the sentencing remarks from the criminal trial from a psychiatrist, the exact nature of Kelly's 
personality disorder or otherwise, but there was potentially also something at play there that made her more um, psychologically prone to this kind of behaviour. That psychological condition, a a personality disorder, as you've labelled it potentially and as the experts at the trial label it, is something quite different, you've said, to a condition like anxiety or depression um, which we probably hear more about in the context of pregnant women, something like That's right. postnatal yeah. anxiety or perinatal anxiety or depression. That's right. In the community more generally, what is the incidence of perinatal or postnatal anxiety or depression? The, um, the rate that they estimate perinatal anxiety and depression, so there's both of them um, diagnosed, is 1 in 10 and it's one in seven for um, postnatal depression. Okay. So it's quite common. It's relatively common. Yeah, that is really common. And mm. how do we account for it being so common in women? What do you think it is about pregnancy that presents these challenges? I think pregnancy is a very demanding time um, for women, especially the first pregnancy as well. It comes with a lot of changes. It comes with a lot of physical changes. Um, along with that, there are emotional changes because there's a lot of hormonal influences involved as well. It also changes if they're in a relationship, the dynamic of that relationship. Um, and it changes how they kind of interact basically with the with the world and their environment. And they can no longer do things that they used to do. So their life is dramatically changed. It's a really significant period of change um, that women go through when they are pregnant and have a baby. Is the incidence of perinatal or postnatal anxiety and depression higher for certain women than it is for others? I don't think we can... When we look at perinatal anxiety and depression, what we look at amongst women are risk factors. And some women may have more risk factors than others. And those risk factors are things like a single mother will be more at risk because she's just more isolated and she's really kind of on call 24-7. We also know that some married women are at risk if their partner is not involved. So essentially, you know, they're becoming a single mum. Um, Then we also look at um, risk factors such as previous mental illness, previous kind of depression or anxiety. Um, They are certainly risk factors. Um, Those people that are socially isolated, certainly um, younger mums are more at risk, but we're talking about really kind of younger mums. Um, And, you know, people that generally kind of lack that community support and don't have good relationships, good friends and, um, you know, good GP that will look out for them. So there are a number of things that come into it and also it's socioeconomic status. So, of course, you know, women that are having babies that are really kind of scraping by and have to work right up until they have the baby and then quickly return to work again, they are really, you know, um, at risk as well because it's just a struggle for them to um, do these things, and especially if the, the pregnancy is unplanned or unwanted. Mm, sure. So there's a lot of risk factors there, and I would have thought almost all of them apply to some extent to Kelly. So regardless of whether a mental health condition had any part to play in her concealment of the pregnancy, um, she was certainly someone at risk of, of suffering from depression and anxiety as well. 
Yes, you could have been, yes. And more generally, as a group then, how do we manage what's a really significant health risk for pregnant women? How is it managed at the moment in hospitals and clinically by health practitioners? Well, I have been in private practice for quite some time now, um, for 15 years. And prior to that, I was working in public. So I can't say exactly what's happening in public now, but when I did work in public and we, you know, at the Martin Mothers, we were quite, um, did quite an intensive screening process. And there were a lot of mothers that came through, so we were attached to the antenatal clinic and um, a doctor that had concerns or a midwife that had concerns about a lady turning up who was pregnant and her mental state, they would then get referred to us and we would take them kind of through an assessment, a bit of a screening process. And if we had concerns as well, we will continue to follow them right up through birth and beyond and then refer them out. A few years ago, I was also involved in a local GP initiative, again, for perinatal mental health. And, you know, there are a number of GPs out there that are really quite strong advocates of looking after new mums and doing those screening processes. But I think there's still a big gap where people do fall through and it's difficult to know how to capture them. But, we, you know, we're trying to work hard by putting out websites and putting out all this information, um, creating mothers, mother groups and, um, you know, just trying to disseminate information to GPs as well. But I think, you know, sometimes people that do go through the public hospitals may get a bit more attention from that than those people that go through privately. Because when you do go through privately, you don't get a mental health team attached to your intake or your pregnancy that may be, you know, just sitting in the background and making sure that you're actually okay. Sure. So there's a lot that is done then. There's screening um, in the public system and there's a bit of an emphasis upon that in GP practices, but there's still women who you would expect fall through the cracks. Um, some women aren't being screened at an appropriate stage and and those women are at risk then of not receiving the support they need. Absolutely. If they have a, yeah. if they have a condition there. Yeah. It is a process of trying to educate as many doctors and as midwives as we possibly can and also putting that information out there in the community a bit like you know what we're seeing kind of with suicide at the moment and you know are you okay day those types of things start to make a difference because sometimes women are frightened of asking for help or frightened of saying I'm not coping because I've had terrible thoughts about harming their baby all those types of things because they worry that they're going to get judged negatively because they have this, um, these feelings and these thoughts about themselves and about their baby. Mm. And because motherhood, as portrayed in kind of the general media, is this amazing time where you have these amazing experiences and so light and love. But in reality, we know that it's not actually like that. Sure, there are those moments, but there's also moments that it's really, really hard when your baby's screaming at three o'clock in the morning and you just can't settle them, you don't know what to do, you are sleep-deprived yourself and you just feel um, beside yourself. And this is where mothers really, some of them really do struggle because they think, I never had any idea that it was going to be like this. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's it's a really difficult time and um, yeah. getting the right support is essential, I guess, is what you're saying. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. If I can sum up then, Catherine, the the situation which Kelly Lane was in is is really unique and it's difficult to draw a direct link between that and any mental health issue she might have had. But it's undisputable that whatever was going on, um, what's resulted is a highly undesirable outcome for both mother and child. Mm. And mental health more broadly is a significant risk factor for women going through a pregnancy. Um, all women, um, but yeah, as a, as a group, they're at a significant risk of their mental health declining at that phase in their life. And what you've said is that appropriate screening is one of the most essential things to make sure we can manage that. Is there anything else you think that's absolute clinical best practice that needs to happen for pregnant women to make sure we can identify women who have those risk factors or who have a mental health condition and appropriately manage that for them? I think it really has to be at the front line where GPs are talking to women about how they're feeling and um, also disseminating information. So part of their kind of baby pack that they get they also get some information about mental health and what are some, you know, perinatal mental health issues. When do you feel that you need to kind of put your hand up and ask for help and to normalise some of that as well and to start some conversations um, about those things. So that might involve a bit of an awareness campaign among society more generally as well, yeah? So That's right. the women, yeah. the women themselves may receive the information on discharge from hospital or throughout their pregnancy, but if there's shame or a low level of understanding amongst the rest of the community, it's really hard to reach out and get help. That's right. That's mm. exactly right. Mm. I think too, the um, the thing about um, the community is that everyone's kind of saying, oh, wow, it must be so wonderful to have this baby. And, you know, everyone's very, very excited. And so women feel very guilty when they kind of think, I'm really not coping with this. Thank you very much for your time, Catherine. We really appreciate it. And that was a really interesting discussion about all of those issues. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Thanks, Catherine. I hope you all agree that it was really interesting speaking with Catherine about this unusual scenario. As a society, we have historically been prone to glorifying pregnancy and parenthood. And when you think about that, it's not hard to understand why someone who has experienced an unwanted pregnancy or who is simply terrified by the reality of life as a new mother, could fall victim to depression and anxiety, or even turn to maladaptive coping strategies just like Kelly. But the sands are shifting, slowly but surely. There is certainly more awareness now of postnatal anxiety and depression among the community at large than there was, say, 15 years ago. There has also been a significant shift in societal attitudes towards a woman's decision to terminate a pregnancy, culminating with landmark amendments to the law relating to termination of pregnancy in Queensland at the end of last year. In the third and final instalment of our Kelly Lane podcast series, I chat with one of my colleagues, Emma Harmon, about the long road to reform and what implications the recent amendments will have for women in Queensland and, of course, for healthcare providers. Chat to you then.